0: Last three weeks we've been in Psalm 119, and after three weeks we'll be make it through 40 verses, which is less than 25% of Psalm 119, but uh, we'll come back to that in another summer, and uh, for this week we're going to be in Psalm 27, so if you've got your Bibles or some sort of electronic device with a Bible in it, uh, go ahead and open up to that, Psalm 27, we'll read it here in a moment, and uh, this is an interesting psalm because uh, at first, it's honestly pretty difficult to know, is this uh, a lament of sorrow and, and sadness from the psalmist, or is this a psalm of confidence uh, in, in God, and what I hope you're going to see, what we're all going to see, is that this is both. Uh, I hope that you're going you're to see this psalm, and read this psalm, and learn from this psalm, and that you're going to see that the world is full of many situations uh, that can evoke fear in us, and yet... The world has just one mighty God who can take away that fear. Uh, It is written by King David, and it is written by King David as he is facing this onslaught of armies coming around him, attacking him, uh, threats from the outside, and so that's where we're at. So Psalm 27, we're going to read the whole thing in one go today, right from the start. Follow along if you've got it. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? pray lord this is your word Uh, we ask to understand it and to believe it and to be changed by your word today Uh, all that we learn in psalm 27 in jesus name we pray amen so the summer after my my junior year in high school this will be 1996 that's a long time ago um, my dad and my stepmother were away on vacation and had the house to myself and I decided on a Friday afternoon in the summer to uh, go hiking alone just north of Houston there's this national forest uh, fitly called Sam Houston National Forest and uh, I went out there and I went with uh, only armed with one thing a yellow Sony Walkman that had a cassette tape in it with the mixtape of course with something amazing on it I'm sure uh, and I went on this walk and I went around this this uh, little lake that was out there and after I'd hiked a few miles out into the woods uh, it began to turn dark and so I turned back and began to head back to where my car was and I found that as the sun set suddenly the path looked completely different uh, to the point that I couldn't see the path at all and um, eventually I had no idea where I was going and I kept finding myself oh there's a lake again there's a lake again there's a lake again and it was so dark and every step of it was absolutely terrifying because i had no way to know if i was going to step on a a snake or a hole or if some javelina it's like a wild pig is going to eat me Uh, and it was just terrifying remember this is an era in 96 i told you this is before high school students had phones Um, nobody was looking at me looking for me and so i ended up spending the entire night out in this national forest just absolutely terrified at every moment and I can remember thinking back to that because I just still think about this. The one thing that I desired that evening was was for light to show me the way to safety, Uh, for light to just take away the fear of the darkness out there. And in fact, I have never before and I have never again been so excited just to see the sun coming up by the next morning, to see the light start to fill the earth again. Uh, The author. Here begins this psalm with a a confident proclamation. You see that the Lord is my light and and my salvation. See, light must always be understood in contrast to darkness. And and the point here then is that the suffering of the world, the, the, the armies against them, they can be like darkness. But since God is light, he can drive out that darkness. He can drive out those moments of fear. I think it's fair to say that, that fear is a very human thing. Um, you know, living in fear, however, is a very unnecessary thing for a Christian uh, because, you know, our, our Daddy, our Heavenly Father is, is just too strong for us to remain in fear. That's why Philippians 4.6 tells us what we're to do when we fear. Not just simply never fear, but what we're to do when we fear, you know. It says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. The psalmist here also says that God is my salvation. You and I want to read that and hear uh, salvation from sin. But here he's just speaking of deliverance from his enemy, that God will deliver him. And then he calls the Lord his stronghold. Uh, God is his refuge. It's to God that he goes when he is in, in need of safety and rest. Uh, And twice, right here at the very beginning, it asks this question, if God is my light and my savior, and if the Lord is the stronghold of my life, then who should I be afraid of? That's the question he's asking. Now you read this, and and certainly we always need to have a respectful fear of God, but that's, that's not what the question is about here. The question is, is what person should we fear given that God is our light, given that God is our salvation, given that God is our stronghold? And the answer, though not given, is clearly assumed, no one. So why do we fear people? You ever think about that? Why do we fear that, that lady down the street, what she thinks about us? Um, today, why do we fear what terrorists might do in our, our cities? Why do we fear that in the future we won't have money to provide for, for our needs, or our, our family's needs? You know, those are all reasonable fears. Nothing I said is absolutely crazy. It's not like people who are afraid of daddy long legs. You know, they can't even bite you. Uh, the reasonable fears, but the the reason we're afraid as we walk through life is that we fail to understand just how capable the light is at driving out the darkness, um, or we fail to understand and and truly believe, at least in those moments, right? At least in those moments. That Jesus is our light. and John 8:12, Jesus is speaking, and he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And, and remember, you, you know from experience that light takes away fear. You know, you how many of you have heard that noise at night? You know, you're sleeping and suddenly there's some weird noise and you're creeped out by it. Uh, you imagine some intruder has come into your house. What do you do? I mean, besides sit there for a while, hoping it will go away. Uh, you turn the lights on, because you want to see what it really is. You need to see what it really is, and, and more often than not, the light reveals that it's not as scary as we thought. It's, you know, like a child's balloon being pushed around by a fan or something like that. And yet, even if it is something scarier in the light, we can now deal with whatever it is. Um, and in life, you know, God does not leave us to deal with fearful things and situations alone. You remember that, that feeling as a child when uh, you're running from something that terrified you, right? Maybe a dog off a leash, maybe an angry sibling, something like that, and you'd run into the arms of your mother or your father, and they'd, they'd lift you up and bring you into safety, right? In those strong arms. How many of those adults have just wished that someone could offer that to you at points in your life? Right? You know, we're, we're told in the psalm that, that God can, that God does, and, and you know, for, for those who are his children, that he gives a comfort just like that. And then verse 3 ends with the psalmist feeling so confident in God, he, he says we will, or rather, uh, you know, that we're going to walk through God, or we're going to walk through life rather, either confident that God will protect us, or our life is just going to be filled with fear. Verse 4 is pretty significant here. If you could ask the Lord of one thing, what would it be? You ever, you ever think about that? If I could ask God anything, what would it be the one thing? You know, would it be to, to bring back some loved one back from the dead, back to life? Would it be for fame or, or riches? Or would it be what the psalmist asked for? Here, you, you see that. He asked simply to, to be in the house of the Lord. Um, so let me ask you a question. Uh, and mentally consider this. You don't have to shout this out. Uh, why are you here today? I mean, why, why gather here today? Why sing to the Lord? Why do you pray to God? Why, why do you get up early on a Sunday morning and go through the trouble of getting yourself dressed or children dressed and out the door to, to come gather here? You know, is it because you feel you're supposed to be at church on a Sunday morning? Or is it because God's useful to you? You know, does, does you get the idea that God improves your friendships or your marriage or your parenting or something of that nature? Uh, Jonathan Edwards, a uh, Puritan pastor, once expressed that the Christian gathers to worship God because they find God beautiful. Because they find God's holiness mesmerizing and terrifying, but, but also God's grace majestic and his kindness endearing. See, there's this this satisfaction to be had in our triune God that really is found nowhere else. You know, it's, it's not found even in the absolute best of marriages. Um, it's not found in the wonder of motherhood or fatherhood. It's, it's not found in the super successful career or fame or wealth or anything that, that people tend to dream of. There's a satisfaction that is found only in the Lord our God, and that's why... He makes this request of the Lord to ask, you know, just for one thing. And when he asks for just one thing, it's a, a statement that, that is saying this. To be satisfied, I need just this one thing. This is what I need. And in his one thing is to be in the house of the Lord in the presence of God. Throughout this, he refers to the house of, uh, the house of God as a, a temple, right? It's pretty interesting considering the temple hadn't even been built yet. It's just a future hope that David hopes to see happen. I won't come until after him. At this point, God's house is not the majestic temple we picture. It's a a tabernacle. It's a very less glamorous tent. Um, And yet, that physical location is where the Israelites would go to be in the presence of God, which, which raises the question, right? I mean, I thought of it. Surely you have. Is this building here the house of God? Is this where you come to be in the presence of God? I think the answer is both yes and no, and I know it's an annoying answer, but, you know, the temple today is not made with brick and mortar, um, but as we learn in 1 Corinthians 6.19, that the bodies of God's people, that's the temple of the Holy Spirit, that's where God's Spirit dwells. Um, And you might also point out, right, God is everywhere, right? Well, right, he is, but he's also uniquely present in some situations. Matthew 18.20 says, for where two or three are gathered in my name... There am I among them. So yes, in a sense, when we gather in this place together on Sunday morning, this is the house of the Lord. And I I hope you find joy being here, worshiping God together. And I hope you feel free uh, as we worship in music or any other aspect of the service just to to close your eyes and worship the Lord, sitting or or standing, your hands by your side or your hands raised, you know, to worship the Lord. Because that's, that's why we gather. We gather to worship a God who is worthy of our worship. And then in verse 5, we see the psalmist's motive, right? He's wishing to be, why he wants to be in the presence of God. And it's for safety. It's for reassurance. It says, he will hide me in his shelter. He will conceal me. It's the, the same reason that a child who is having a nightmare wants to sleep next to a parent and no longer alone for the rest of that evening. See, the the presence of God is a a shelter. It's a a, a safe place. A friend of mine told me recently about a a tragedy that happened to a a family in his church. A a mother of of three young children after surgery fell into a a coma. And and later that week, she died. It's absolutely heartbreaking. But um, my friend on on Sunday was, was surprised that Uh, To see the father and the children at church just just two days later after this, on a Sunday morning, they're worshiping the Lord. And um, he was so surprised that I asked him, Well, where else would you want to be? Uh, And he said, You know, I just don't think I'd be strong enough to to come to church if that happened to me. Brothers and sisters, we don't seek the presence of God because of our strength, we we seek the presence of God because of our, our weakness and because of God's strength. That's where you want to be. You want to be worshiping him. In verse 6, he speaks of making sacrifices to God along with shouts of joy. I think too often we think of sacrifices as, as us giving things we don't want to give, right? It's, you know, you can have my bottle cap, but you can't have my bottle and what's in it. You know, it's that it's idea of giving something that we don't want to let go of. Uh, our, our giving to God, though, should be more like, um, should be less like paying taxes and, and more like proposing, Right? When, when I proposed to Laura, I, I gave her a ring. I gave her an expensive ring, and I did so with, with absolute joy. You know, I, I wasn't there on, on one knee going through my head, you know, what else could I have bought with this money? This is so much money. Yeah, That wasn't what was on my mind. It was just a joy to give to her because I loved her. And do love who? That sounds like past tense. <laughs> um, that's what it means to offer sacrifices with, with shouts of joy, to do so willingly. Okay, so so many of you, grammar, you can't say the word Nazi anymore, I just did. Grammar types, English grammar types, you know, um, there's a big change here in verse 7. If you notice, the first six verses that uh, are written in the third person, they are talking about God. And now in verse 7, it changes to the first person, so that now the psalmist is speaking to God. I think many of us in this room need to make a similar transition from just learning about God, just talking about God, so that we are speaking with God to God. And that means prayer. Verse, verse 8, then he confirms that he has obeyed the Lord. He says, you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, have I, or do I seek? And, and understand here, seek's not like hide and seek. It's, it's not where you're wandering about looking for something lost. That's the way we tend to use that word. That's not the way it's used here. Seek here has this clear focus uh, of commitment uh, to the way that life has called, or life that God has called him to. There is this, this intimacy involved in this. You know, we, when we have conflict with people, you don't make eye contact with them. You look away from them, you turn their back. There's, there's always that, I don't want to have that kind of contact. But when we are, Um, we look directly in the eyes with people that we're close with, which is why I don't think we really dislike people in our personal space. We just dislike people we're not close to in our personal space. Um, Seven billion people on the planet prove that, right? Uh, The fact that God calls us to seek his face then is a testimony to the closeness of, of the relationship that God calls us to with him, just that personal aspect. There is this Latin phrase that has historically been used by Christians to speak about the essence of the Christian life, uh, "Corum Deo. Any of you ever heard that before? It's Latin. We don't do much Latin, but it means before the face of God. It means that all of life is lived under the authority of God and for the glory of God. It's what First Chronicles 16.11 means when it says, seek the Lord and his strength, seek his presence continually. It's hope, it's the hope we hear when we read Second Chronicles seven fourteen. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. And what we, we learn here in verse 8 then is that if our hearts find delight in the presence of God, in the face of God, then, then we can accept the possibility of losing earthly things, earthly pleasures, earthly loves, even, even without fear. Because we have God. Verse 9, then, we we see that the psalmist is a very real person, right? Sometimes it feels, do you know the problems I have? Uh, But here he's writing, and despite all that he's written, he expresses this fear that God will leave him. You know, just as dwelling in the house of God is his greatest joy, the greatest fear that he is fearing is that God might forsake him. Verse 10, then, is very interesting. It's... uh, if you ever read any self-help books some of them are good uh, but books on anxiety they tend to tell the reader that the way that we fight anxiety is by imagining a better scenario you know think of things um, think of good things and don't think about whatever it is that worries you just push it back and be gone with it Think about good things and how they could turn out. And, and the psalmist here faces anxiety very different. In verse 3, he thinks about the army surrounding him, right? That's a bad thing. Now he imagines one of the worst emotional situations he can think of. He imagines his parents abandoning him. He, he imagines the worst situation and, and then he combats that truth of of the truth of, uh, with the truth of who God is and the love of God uh, and how secure it is for the believer. Um, this idea that even if that were to happen, he would still be secure in the love of the Lord. I think it's, it's sad, but true, that every human is capable of abandoning you. But not God. Not God. I mean, do you hear this, Christian? Not God. Christ has bought you with a price, and you are his, and he will never abandon his children. That's why Jesus can say in John 6, 37-39, all that the Father has given me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. Listen to this, that I shouldn't lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Then in verse 13, we we see this perspective change back again, right? He's been talking directly with God in prayer, and now he's speaking about God again as he proclaims uh, a confident hope that God will indeed guard his life. Um, the psalm then ends with this much needed encouragement and wisdom of verse 14 he says it twice or twice we say or he says wait for the lord right wait for the lord waiting for the lord here is not passive it's it's active it's waiting instead of worrying you know you you pray for god to give you a child and and even if it's not easy you you wait for the lord You, you long for a spouse and And rather than forcing it to to happen your way, you you wait for God to provide. The same with a job search or or health issues. It might even be a prodigal son or a daughter that that you're waiting for God to bring back home. Not only waiting, though, he also writes this. He also writes, be strong and let your heart take courage. Those are the same words that God gave Moses to speak to Joshua just before they were, he led them across the Jordan River into the promised land. Uh, the land that they had been waiting for God to give them for a very long time. Um, it's in Deuteronomy 31.7. It says, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has shown to their fathers to give them. And you shall put them in possession of it. In both cases, this is a, a call to be strong. Not because you are strong, but because God is strong and he goes with us. It's as, as Paul ends his letter to the Ephesians in Ephesians 6.10 saying, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Okay, that's the text. Now I want to close by just asking three questions and giving you three answers to this. The first one is this. Where do you go in, in times of distress? Where do you go in times of distress? And I mean when life is too much for you. Uh, just too much to handle. When, when stress and anger and despair and fear just wash over you. You go to a friend. You go to a, a spouse. And those are all good and helpful. But they're not enough. Um, you know, even more important is that we do that we go to God. And, and that means prayer. And that we understand that we're really speaking with God. A real God. And that we understand that God is really hearing us when you speak to him. Seek the Lord in in times of distress. Second question is this. How do you pursue the beauty of God? We talked about that right here. He sees the beauty of God. And the answer is that that the beauty of God must be experienced. I know that sounds weird coming out of my mouth. But uh, you know John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, both intellectual giants. They understood that beauty can't be explained very well. It must be experienced. Only those who have looked at out across the rim of the Grand Canyon can really understand its beauty. Jonathan Edwards once wrote that there's a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. His point is, to know the sweetness of honey, you must actually taste it. To, to know the beauty of the Grand Canyon, you must actually see it. And it's not enough that you know intellectually that God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are beautiful and that they can bring the light. You must actually experience this delight yourself. And that means lifting your eyes to look upon God in the scriptures. That means focusing your thoughts on the beauty and the holiness of God. You know, when we, when we pray to God, you know, beginning our prayers just with praise to God. We kind of learn this somewhere, but we don't really know why we do that. Um, you know, something like, God, you're, you're everywhere and you've created this amazing world. God, you've loved me and you've made me holy in the gospel. And, and we do this because it helps us to remember just how wonderful God is. And it means also that we, we, we've got to stop seeing God as, as merely just a means to an end. You know, that, the question is, is God a, a useful tool? You're afraid to answer that sometimes, aren't you? Yes, God is a, a useful tool in that sense, you know. And he asked us to bring our problems to him because he can fix them, because he wants to hear them. You know, whatever they are. But, but too often we, we find that our prayer is just a list of things we want God to do for us. God's not Siri. He's beautiful. When's the last time you prayed? And the only reason you did so was to express to God how wonderful and how beautiful he is. That kind of hurts me to think about that. Uh, I wish I had a better answer. You know, even in human relationships, we understand this. Can you imagine if I, if I only spoke with my wife, Lord, to tell her what I needed? I never... I never stopped to consider how kind and how beautiful she is if I never considered how how thankful I am for her and how much I love her you know what that would be like See, when I, when I look on her beauty inside and out, there's this, this overflowing that comes where, where you just express this to her. You express that enjoyment to her. And that's, that's why we should ponder God's beauty in creation and the order of the universe and in the scriptures and especially in the gospel where we see how, how, how the God who created this amazing universe has loved us and given his son as an atoning sacrifice that we might know him as a father, even though we began as enemies. So then the last question is this, how do we wait for the Lord? We're not a culture of, of waiting people. Um, that's why we hate it when we go in those South American nations and everyone just sits around and waits a lot. Um, I was reminded of this on our, our trip recently, we, we took down to Texas. I Remember just how much I hate waiting. We went through Dallas and Austin and San Antonio and Houston, all four of which were just miserable traffic left and right. No, there was no left and right. You just sit there. Um, and, and I just thought to myself as I looked out, no wonder they all buy these nice cars. They spend half their life in these cars. Um, and I think we, we hate waiting because we equate it with just wasted time. It's just wasted time. And waiting in the Lord even seems like wasted time. Uh, when I was in junior high, my, my friends and I went to the roller rink, and after skating around in circles to REO Speed Wagon a few hundred times, we'd, we'd sit outside and we'd wait for mom, someone's mom to come pick us up. And I can remember just being frustrated sometimes when we'd go out there, and she wasn't there. We'd sit around and we'd wait as if we had anything else to do, right? Um, and, and, and we'd be frustrated. And you know, though, that, that, that there's, this, there's really nothing more humbling than, than waiting. Let me tell you why, though. It's because... It means that we are on their schedule and not my schedule. Um, sometimes we need that humbling in our lives, as we're reminded that I, you know, God's not on my schedule; I'm on His schedule. And waiting for the Lord then can be a spirit, you know, is a spiritual strength that we exercise as we trust God for our futures. You know, you're learning to trust God, not just to receive from God, but to trust him for that which you have not received. When the pain remains, when the frustration endures, you know, too often we we prefer action to waiting. That's the way we like to do it. It's even, you know, that's a good thing where waiting is seen as a bad thing, which is, you know, why we need to pray for discernment, I think, to, to know when action is necessary, but also when waiting is the course that we need to take. You know, that the saints of the Old Testament, today's psalmist David included, understood that that God was going to send a Messiah. They understood that that there was a Savior that was going to come for God's people, but it didn't come quickly. In fact, uh, by any human standard of time, it did not come quickly. They waited and they waited and they waited, and then God kept his promise. God accomplished what he said he would accomplish when Christ was born. He lived a perfect perfect life and was sacrificed upon a Roman cross <clears throat> for the people of God, past, present, and future. We again wait today. We're waiting for Christ's second coming. It's not always easy waiting, but uh, we can do so with confidence that knowing that God will finish what he has begun, knowing that he will protect our bodies and our souls, bringing us safely and surely into his e- eternal kingdom. You know, we can wait with confidence because God himself has guaranteed it. Just, just as we see in John 6:39, we read it early. Let me close just by reading the last portion again. And, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. That's speaking about me and you. If your faith is in Christ, that you'll be risen in the last day.